welcome to What Goes Around podcast. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. And I am in deep hell at the moment because I've just moved house. Everything I own is in cardboard boxes. I have 10 years of stuff which I accumulated at the last place to sort through. And uh, I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and make me feel a lot better. But that explains the quality of my recording today because my microphone isn't set up. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have the usual high-tech kit. So just recording this on my phone. But please enjoy the podcast. Like and subscribe. Share with your friends. We've got a great show lined up for you today. And what? Anne phones in the intro from her new flat. I want to tell you about what's on the show today. First up, we have a review of Chris France's new book, Remain in Love, the story of how two people got together, formed a band, conquered the world, and put up with David Byrne at the same time. And we talk about cassette tapes and whether or not they uh, might be coming back. And we are delighted to welcome to What Goes Around eminent neuroscientist Professor Sophie Scott. Sophie's here to tell us a little bit about how our brains work and how her brain was affected by various pieces of music that she heard at specific times in her life. So dig in and enjoy the podcast. We'll catch you on the other side. And don't worry, she doesn't sound like that all the way through the show. Let's do a pod. Murder, would you like to tell me what goes around? In a dramatic shift of emphasis on this show, I am going to review not a uh, music documentary, but a music book. Mm. I've been reading like a big girl. Um, did I just say I've been reading like a big girl? You did, yes. That was Freudian. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so um, I uh, have been given a lovely book. It's called Remain in Love, Talking Heads Tom Tom Club. Uh, and it's by Chris France uh, from the Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club. Mm. And it's basically about his um, time in the band and the uh, amazing and rather sweet notion that um, Tina Weymouth and himself um, basically got together, formed the band, got married, did 20 years of being the coolest people in the world, um, you know, uh, still producing amazing stuff and doing Tom Tom Club. They're still together. And they've just got through this crazy rock and roll machine and seem to still love each other, which is really quite heartening in many ways. That's adorbs. And it's just amazing because they're not your average run of the mill musicians. You know, they're like uniquely creative people who make incredible music that sort of meshes really well together. You know, what an amazing love story. That gives me faith. Yeah, and um, and they also, uh, you know, Talking Heads were a proper art rock band. You know, mm. they're, they're, they're properly... Um, they all came from art school. They all went to the Rhode Island School of Design and they all hung out with Andy Warhol at the factory and they all hung out with Lou Reed. And, you know, it, basically, the story of them, you know, because you've got to remember, Chris France, the, the, the guy who's writing this, he comes from Kentucky, mm. which is, you know, you know, men on porches playing banjos and shit. <laughs> um, and, and for them to then end up in the Bowery of New York in 1974 or whatever when it was a completely lawless messed up place forming talking heads living across the road from cbgb's being part of that scene uh you know being invited to the factory by andy warhol having lou reed 
try and sign them to you know just so many amazing amazing stories and it really gives you a a really nice feel for um how small new york must have been for a city mm-hmm. the, where the stars aligned and the ley lines crossed on the on the cbgb club um those people the way they talks about it in this book you realize that it's just like a small village you know what i mean They're, of course new york's a massive city but the the people who frequented this area they all had a massive influence on each other and all of the influences um that each band brought into the scene uh collectively they just became so strong and so powerful and it 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 kicked off the whole wave of punk rock that we know now but like i say then they didn't know it would be punk they, it was just a, a description of like-minded people coming together and really interestingly all these bands were making amazing music and none of them sounded very much like each other at mm. all mm. Much like yourself, I'm kind of obsessed with that whole idea of New York in the late 70s being so dangerous, this incredible sort of creative hub with hip hop at one end and punk at the other end and all the amazing fashion and everything else. And I'm reading a book, um, the autobiography of Andre Leon Talley, who's the editor at large for Vogue magazine, who was in New York at that same time hanging out. You know, he worked for um, he worked with Andy Warhol. Um, and I, every time I, you know, it's one of many books I've read about that era and films as well. We mentioned, um, what was it, The Hottest Night NY in... NY77, The yeah. Cruise Here in Hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All I, my, my, my sort of, the feeling that remains with me after I read a book or watch a film about that era is like, oh my God, I would have felt like the least cool person on the face of the <laughs> earth. I can imagine being there and just completely feeling totally alienated from all the cool shit that was happening. <laughs> I think that's one of the charming things about their story really is um, that really, you know, uh, Chris France, uh, his dad was in the, um, he was a, a lawyer in the end, but he, he, he did some time in the American services. Tina Weymouth's dad was in the American services. Um, you know, these are middle class art school kids who then moved into the, the roughest bit of New York possible. And, and managed to pull off this incredible trick of, of becoming one of the world's premier bands within, you know, within two years of forming. They, there they were. What's interesting about uh, reading the, the, his account is that I think they knew they were uncool. And what was really interesting about them was they didn't try and pretend to be cool. That would have so, been my downfall, trying to pretend exactly, to be cool. I, know, I would have been the same. I'd have liked, oh, what I need is a big tattoo of Lou Reed or something on my face. <laughs> but but they, they showed up and, they, you know, he said, you know, they used to try and dress up for their gigs, but they wouldn't try and dress in a uniform like the Ramones or the Clash. They were trying to be ordinary. So he would literally rock up in the jumper his mum got him for Christmas. And David Byrne would often borrow one of his polo shirts to, to go on stage because he didn't have enough clean clothes. Now... That sounds really simple and twee, uh, but actually, with hindsight, you can see that was the most radical thing they could do, to just go up and look like they'd stepped out the Sears catalogue mm. and start rocking, you know, it wedged in between Blondie and the Ramones. Mm. It, it just, it's such a, a powerful idea not to try and be that rock, rock and roll star. Mm. And if you think that idea in the mid 70s when we were just coming off the the sort of tail end of glam and disco was blowing up and all that it was all about you know star spangled boots and incredible hats and you know 
uh, flashy twirling guitars and all that sort of stuff. And there they were in sports casuals and um, and just knocking out um, strange songs about psycho killers. Uh, it's, it's just it's gloriously simple and um, well done. <laughs> Sounds like a gorgeous book. Remain in Love, is that what it's called? It's called Remain in Love. And it, it, it is very nice. And uh, it's quite interesting because he's, uh, he's ob- obviously the whole premise of the book is that he's um, happily married to Tina Weymouth um, for 40 years or whatever it is. And that's all lovely. But he does come across a bit of a creepy granddad sometimes. <laughs> because, <laughs> because although he never seems to do anything uh, particularly risque or naughty on that front, every woman who is mentioned in the book has like uh, two or three words allotted to how they look. Oh, so she was hell. very cute. Oh, she was uh, a stylish young petite mom. You know, and it was just, oh, Jesus. I, I, I didn't notice it at first, but as I've got further and further into the book, it's just like, yeah, quietly kind of creepy, Chris. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That reminds me of, do you remember you know, I, I, I read Moby's autobiography? Yeah, so I, I got it and I read it and I was like, I'm glad I read it. I don't need this anymore. <laughs> Amen. On to you. But he does the exact same thing. Every single girl that pops up, it's like you think it's going to lead to something because he's like, why is he talking so much about how she looks and what she was wearing and the fact that like, you know, she kissed him on the back of the neck or whatever it was, you know, and yet then it doesn't lead to it. It's like, why do you have to tell me about every single woman over the course of your entire career from start to finish who showed any kind of gentle interest in you? That yeah, doesn't that yeah. it's not really uh, like doesn't really it's help just the story. one of those things as well, you know, you he, he doesn't doesn't spend his time saying, uh, you know, oh, Richard Hell was quite muscly. Or, <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but literally every single girl that he meets, you know, like the woman in the checkout to the waitress in the... Oh, the waitress was cute. And, you know, well, all right, mate. <laughs> just, <laughs> just the waitress is a waitress. Do you, unless you've got a story about her being cute, shut up. You just sound creepy. <laughs> Do you think he wrote it and then Tina read through the first draft and was like, OK, you can release this book as it is, but you have to put a slant on it where the main overarching story is about how much you love me. Yeah, I think it could be. There could be a little little bit of arm twisting quietly in the side. I'll tell you what else is very interesting, though, is, um, and this is really what I I kind of wanted to talk about uh, in terms of the book, is that um, Talking Heads have always been one of my favourite bands. And weirdly, I've not really read a great deal about them, if you know what I mean. I haven't read loads of interviews with them for some reason. I don't know why, but I haven't. So a lot of this is quite new. And it's it's very interesting to see that basically this book is like 400 pages of um, character assassination for, for, <laughs> for poor old Dave, you know? David yeah. Byrne gets it in the neck all the way through from Chris France. Now, I don't know yeah. if Chris is, is just telling it like it is, and David is a weird and slightly... Um, selfish man he comes across um there's a lot of stories which are which kind of are sort of petty in one way uh but you know over a period of time you can tell they build up into sort of a a picture of the man you know like they had a um one of their first um galleries when they were um uh, at the rhode island school of art and design they had um a show together and uh, they hung the show, and then, um, unbeknownst to um, Chris and Tina, David Byrne went back into the show and moved everything around, so all his stuff was in the front room. <laughs> what and a brick! Was in the, I know what a brick. What they do? And then he wrote some lyrics, and um, when the song was recorded, David Byrne uh, took the the credit for writing those and then had to on the next issue of the album they had to change it because he said look you know i plainly wrote that you didn't <laughs> but it, it was really interesting um as well because they were talking about how 
uh, they didn't have any recording equipment um so the only proof of anything they actually had was you know they if they had a new song they would have to play it and play it and play it until they couldn't forget it that's mm, how they remembered wow. it and if if they had to write down the lyrics they had to write them down you know pen and paper old school so it was, it's a very interesting um, look into how Talking Heads started their writing. And I think eventually um, David Byrne said, uh, I want to do all the lyrics now. That's it. <laughs> you, you can shut up. <laughs> it's all about me now. Um, but all of that's really interesting. But uh, you do think by the end of it, it's like either Chris Francis uh, you know, holds a grudge pretty bad or David Byrne wasn't very nice. Well, this this is always the way. I mean, I fucking love music memoirs. Uh, memoirs in general, I love. I mean, like the book that I mentioned that I'm reading by Andrea Leon Talley is basically just an epic takedown of Anna Wintour. That's the shtick of the entire book, essentially. You know, and that's the the beauty. It's like you get to write your memoir. You get to to stick it to everyone who's yeah. ever done you wrong. It's like a Father Ted when he's getting ready to accept his award, and he's like, and now we move on. To liars. That's what I would be like <laughs> if I was writing my memoir. But it's also on the other side of that, it's like you get a, a, a reassuring sense that, you know, these godlike genii who who write the music that we love are not people who you'd want to be friends with. Like, can you imagine trying to be mates with Grace Jones or someone? It's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, well, another thing that is interesting about reading this, um, because Talking Heads were together for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. They weren't like, you know, three albums and, and gone, or the Smiths, five, six albums and gone. Talking Heads, you know, they were together from 74, you know, right through up to the 90s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's, a, that's a real commitment. And if you've ever been the band, and I've been the band, um, uh, and you've been in the back of vans touring around and you've had very little sleep and not enough to eat and then you get drunk and do a gig and then you run to, you know, and you're on this constant treadmill of doing all that, then remaining nice and keeping the band tight and together and happy is a really hard task. And some bands, you know, you just think, maybe you should split up. Maybe <laughs> as much as I love your music, you know. Imagine being the bass player in Oasis or, or is it... Bonehead or Gigsy or whatever it's yeah. called. But, you know, there must have come a point where just you're on the bus from Stockholm and those two are at it, <laughs> shouting at each other. You just think, oh, God, get me out of here. Yeah. It's not worth a million pounds I'm going to earn. Sam and Dave, a great example, are the old soul singers, in that um, they hated each other. They really, <laughs> really couldn't stand each other. They literally never spoke to each other. I don't know what the fight was about, but they never spoke to each other again. They travelled in different cars to gigs. And then they'd walk on stage and they'd look like best mates for an hour. <laughs> and then they'd walk off and they wouldn't say anything to each other again. I, I find that whole kind of... Um, business of being in a band and 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 having to fucking deal with other people's huge egos because if you're in a band that gets success everyone's ego goes crazy do you know what mm-hmm. i mean the eagles were brilliant like they they properly properly hated each other and uh, don henley was asked oh when are the eagles going to get back together and he said when hell freezes over and about three or four years later someone offered 20 million dollars or something and they called it the hell froze over tour <laughs> <laughs> perfect <laughs> God, I fucking hate the Eagles. But it must be even harder when you have someone who is just adored as an absolute godlike genius, the way David Byrne was and is. I mean, I know Chris France is on um, Twitter now promoting his book. I think he has like not even 6,000 followers or something like that, which is a lot. But when you consider how 
um, sort of, you know, he's he's not really thought of in any way in the same league as David Byrne. And that must rankle quite a lot because obviously his contribution to the band was also huge. Well, yeah. And, you know, in many ways, you know, if you're married to the bass player and you're the drummer and you started the band and you invited (laughs) David Byrne in, you know, that's that all those things add up. And and then to have to get to the stage, we're saying, okay, Dave, you write all the lyrics. That's fine. We'll just you know check in with a bit of music and that sort of thing. And they obviously a lot of Talking Heads' best music came from the rhythm section. Mm. But it is remembered for David Burns, um, you know, uh, incredible drama in the way that he could sing and and stage shows that they put on. Mm. You know, they, it's not known the Tom Tom Club. Um, our amazing dance band and talking heads around the era of once in a lifetime and um, speaking in tongues they're basically like um, art rock funkadelic you know that is a funky sound and I don't think it came from Mr Byrne but it is (laughs) Mr Byrne who walks away with the accolades Frankenstein, I would like to know what goes around in your world. Well, instead of some bit of nonsense from my own personal life, I actually have something to share with you, which I read in the press uh, this week or last week. Um, And I quote, the latest heritage format to make an unexpected return, the cassette on track to sell 100,000 units this year for the first year since 2003. Um, Your thoughts, first off. Uh, well, well, cassettes are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be a short, a short piece. <laughs> well, no, it won't be because I, I, I caveat that answer by mixtapes were brilliant, mm. but as a format, cassettes. I mean, find me anyone who's got a, a thirty-five-year-old cassette, and I'm guarantee it will sound like you know it will sound like the basic Rollers playing wrapped in a duvet out in the in the yard. You know, underneath 14 tonnes of concrete. (laughs) Is the transient nature of the the quality of the recording not part of the charm now? Every time you listen to it, you have to let it go a little bit more. Is that what the kids are thinking, do you think? uh, I'm giving them too much credit. Well, you know when you put it on, you just get... (laughs) I miss that sound. And of course, then you listen to the music and it kind of disappears. I guess I could say the same about vinyl and crackles, so... Maybe, but I, I don't know. Tapes. I mean, honestly, I've got. I had a lot of memories of tapes, and I've still got a big trunk full of them. But um, they they didn't keep well. Um, I'm glad people are enjoying buying them. But hundred thousand across the entire country is quite quite small. I'm pleased with them. Good. If you enjoy your tapes, that's good. I actually did get a tape not long back mm-hmm. because the fabulous Ramrock Records, uh, who I'm a big fan of, they um, they released a a t-shirt a glorious green t-shirt with inner yard in a sort of like rastafarian style london underground symbol um it looks very cool and i thought i'll have one of those because i've got all these black t-shirts it's about time i had something color so i got that and it came with a mixtape from the legendary ashley beadle oh lovely yeah and it was a doozy a really great mix um uh, but i had to dig out my tape player i was gonna say you had the, the facility to, to play tapes that's quite impressive well it'd been buried for like 10 15 years and i dug it out and stuck it on and of course when i dug it out a i was playing his mix which is brilliant and i found all my mixes and then i was in the wormhole and I've, I, yeah i can't be too harsh on cassettes i i definitely 
I definitely have a soft spot for them. I just wouldn't normally go out and buy one now, would you? Well, I remember when I worked at Flashback, uh, there was like a tiny, tiny shelf with cassettes. And sometimes people would come in and ask where the cassettes are. And it's obviously... There are no major releases. <laughs> Did they step out of a blue police box? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they were very young and hip. I'm talking about Gen, Gen Wires looking for the yeah. cassettes usually because um, obviously no, nothing, no major albums are getting a big release on cassettes these days. It's more like, like you say, kind of people like Ashley Beadle sending out uh, mixtapes as a, as a sort of nostalgic um, mm. novelty thing or like um, smaller record labels putting things out on cassette. Um, I guess it's like... It seems to to me to be more of a kind of younger generation thing. They've discovered this thing. Maybe it's a bit of a retro status thing to have a tape walkman because as we've discussed on this podcast many times, nothing was more exciting than your first cassette walkman. I remember I'd have things on cassette where side two just wouldn't even out with side one. So you'd have like 15 minutes of empty track. That, you'd have that to was the art of the mixtape, wasn't it? It wasn't just yes, recording yeah. the album. It was filling the 15 minutes exactly. that you had left. Yeah, exactly. And there was like, yeah, I mean, mixtapes, obviously a whole other thing in them in themselves. Yeah. I mean, nothing will ever um, capture the, the it's just no other format w- will ever be perfect in the same way that a mixtape was. It still for me defines the perfect length of an album 45 minutes tops mm-hmm. either side that's yeah. it no more any more than that and you're just going on shut up so I, I have a lot of a lot, a lot of good memories of tapes and fair play to anyone who wants a cute little retro item like that but you know I, I would say that vinyl will still be here longer than tapes and and definitely longer than CDs. I think the big flat black things are going to win in the long run. Mm, Although, my money's we, on the flat black things too. Yeah. Obviously, we're joking because everyone's going to be streaming. But um, <laughs> let's just pretend that's not happening. Okay. <laughs> in this podcast, we defer to vinyl. If, if at all possible. Now, listen, if you like your streaming, go like streaming. We do ask playlists. Go and listen to our playlists. It's all good. It's all fine. But in terms of having a thing to own... A thing to hold in your hand, uh, nothing beats that thing. And cassettes are the the best cassettes for me that to actually have, like say, were homemade. They were they were bootlegs. They were mixtapes and mixtapes that your mate had taken time to draw a cover for. If you had a really shit drawing on the front of it that you knew someone had done just for you, it became a very special thing. So, Absolutely. so yeah, I love the tapes. Really, yeah. Go on, let's put a tape on. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Today we are going to up the educational aspect of the podcast by introducing you to one of Britain's best brains. Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and expert on the science of laughter, language and communication, we are delighted to welcome Sophie Scott to What Goes Around. Sophie is an esteemed academic who harbours a deep love of music. Best known for her fascinating work on how laughter is processed by the brain, Sophie has gone from stand-up comedy to presenting the Royal Institute Christmas Lectures and shows no sign of stopping her endless quest for understanding the human condition. We may not understand what we're saying and doing on this podcast, but I'm guessing that Sophie most certainly will. Sophie, we're very pleased to have you come and share your phonographic memories with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. I've had you in mind for quite a long time. 
for the for the listeners, uh, I, I've sort of followed Sophie's work from a distance as a as a, an interested amateur for quite a while, and then one night I was twittering away and we were talking about music. Surprise, surprise! And then um, this clever scientist lady from from the telly popped up and started talking to me about colour box and being a goth and the shaman. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I never had a teacher that even knew who they were. So I was, I was really pleased with that. And I filed that away in a dark corner of my mind. And now here we are many years later and I've got a podcast where we try and talk to people who love music but aren't necessarily musicians or in the business themselves. They just have a real fan's love for music. And I'm pretty sure that's you, is it not, Soph? It is. I am. Um, I'm fairly obsessed with music. I, I do try and make a lot. Of, I try and make time in my day when I will get a chance to listen to music. That's what we like to hear, isn't it, Anne? Yes, absolutely. I was going to say, how do you balance the interest in neuroscience with the interest in music? Like where where, where did the two paths sort of go off in different directions when you were well, when you were young? I, when I was a student, I went to the Polytechnic of Central London and I wanted to study the psychology of music, that's mm. what I wanted to do. And I had, um, I would, that's what I did my dissertation on and that's what I thought I'd applied to do a PhD on. And then I went to do my PhD and my supervisor wanted me to study speech, so I started studying speech. <laughs> and somehow, I've never got back. <laughs> How does that happen? How did that go on? But one thing that I would say is the thing that has probably made a difference for me at the end, you know, not the end of my career, but now some 30 years into being in academia, is that... I went from studying speech to realising I was working with voices because when there's someone talking, there's always a voice as well as the language and voices are musical instruments. Our voices are musical instruments. So I ended up back at music after a very long detour around brains and voices. And that's, but actually I think that probably, I found that quite satisfying. It was kind of like stumbling back onto music academically. Mm. So it's, it's not been wasted. My early interest is not wasted. Can you talk to us specifically about that, about what it is, where your expertise lie in terms of the voice and how it's connected to music and what happens to your brain when you sing or when you hear someone singing? Well, I think because when we talk we use language and psychologists have primarily studied that that's what we've been mostly interested in and that extends to neuroscience as well that's what we look at someone speaking and we follow the trail that the language takes us on and we treat that as the front end of the language system and the same you know when someone's speaking when we decode it that's that's the kind of the getting into and out of language and one of the things that has always been there when you look at the brain of someone listening to speech there's all the brain areas that we know care about language get activated, but there's all these other brain areas on the right side of the brain, the language is mostly on the left, that are always, always there. And we, it took me years to work out that's because there's other information when someone's mm. talking. So you've got identity and emotion mm. and age and sex and all the other stuff that's in your voice. So that's being processed somewhere in the right side of the brain, likes that kind of emotional information and identity information. But also, when we speak, we never speak and I'm on O-tone with just one pa mm. pattern of rhythm. So there's always this pattern of rhythm and music, and, and that's an absolute linguistic universal. Wherever you go and people are talking, they modulate the pitch mm. and the melody of their voice all the time. And it's a huge part of communication, actually, how you do that. And, of course, it turns out that's a massive part of what the right side of the brain likes as well. It really loves that music. And because it doesn't repeat and it doesn't have structure, we don't hear it as music. And even that I hadn't quite realised until 
In fact, he was working with a beatboxer, Harry Yef, Reaps One, who is this kind of inspirational, amazingly creative musician. All of this exploring the voice. And it, I sort of suddenly thought, no, it's, that's not different to speech. It's like speech is the restricted thing and beatboxing is probably something getting closer to what the voice is at all. You know, that the, the voice is this bigger thing than speech. It is this beautiful, amazingly complex, like unimaginably flexible instrument. Mm. And that's probably why we have it. That's probably why it exists at all. And because we can use it for speaking, then that's what we've gone on and still really focused in on. But it is, it's this much bigger thing, and the bigger thing is a musical thing. Mm. I did read somewhere, uh, uh, someone pontificating on the fact that, uh, you know, um, sort of early musical speech really was the foundation of, of, of the whole way that we then developed as, as, a, as a species, do you know what I mean? Mm. The, the, the way we could actually transmit ideas and get complicated, like teles telescoped ideas over to other people. And actually that enabled us to work together in a certain way and, you know. Absolutely, and it's, um, the, I mean, there's huge and endless conversations about why we evolved any of this. But one of the things that is very noticeable is that it really, really matters to us from very, very young. In fact, we learn when we're still in the womb about melody and rhythm in language, such that babies mm. are born knowing about the melody and the rhythm of the language that they've heard their mother speak in this very kind of filtered way, as well as also knowing who she is. But interestingly, that's also one of the, the, the first things that will comfort you, because if you've ever been around a newborn human, they don't, they're not always in the best mood. You know, they, they are, we are born too soon. It's a, it's a complicated state. <laughs> What's going on, exactly? But they are comforted by being fed, they are comforted by being held, and they are comforted by being sung to. Mm. And I think that's because it's a link back to what life was like before you were born. It's one of the few things that actually give you some continuity. And a tremendous sense of comfort. I think we never really lose that. I think it's one of the reasons why we, when we love music, we really love music, is because it's, it's been something that's been part of our life from before we were born. And that's not true of lots of things. Mm. It's been it's just in there, in at the start, and it's a comfort and it's a joy and it's a shared thing from the start. Here's a really crazy example, and I'll shut up about it, but all mothers, <laughs> all mothers sing to newborn infants. It's, an abs again, another absolute universal behaviour. And there's a very particular style, that kind of crooning lullaby style of singing. You find it all around the world. And even deaf women who have not necessarily ever heard their own voice, if they have a hearing baby, they will sing to that baby. Wow. That's, that's the power of it. It's quite yeah. extraordinary. So I think that's... So when you sit music as part of that kind of developmental trajectory, you can start to see why it has a sort of this tremendous claim on our emotions and our experience and lots of other stuff we can like. We can love the visual arts. We can love all sorts of other things. Mm. But the music gets in there first. Yeah, I think so interesting. Having, a, having had a, a daughter like five, six years ago, basically, like if you live with me, then, then it is never quiet. <laughs> it's a constant stream of music being played of one yeah. sort or another. And there were a couple of really weird little things uh, when the baby was uh, in, in mummy's tummy still. Um, one of the things was that um, at the time I was playing, I was playing two things a lot. I was playing Donny Hathaway, Everything is Everything. And I was playing this thing by Lone, which had a lot of sub bass in. Mm. And the baby would wriggle about and, and, and stuff. And whenever the sub bass would come on, it would lie completely still. And it would oh. just... And, and after it was born, the two things that calmed it down immediately was anything that had sub bass in, that's my kid, 
<laughs> Big yeah. up drug list. And, uh, and Donny Hathaway, Everything is Everything. I can remember at one stage we had it, we had it playing and I took it off because I'd played it enough. <laughs> you can never really play it enough, but I played it a lot. So I took it off and she started crying. So I put wow. the needle back on. She's quiet again. I literally, I was doing a little experiment, just taking the yeah. needle on and off. And she was turned on and turned off immediately by that. And, and not by many of the other things I was playing, but specifically those two things. It seemed to seemed to hit her just before she was born. And then it, she seemed to have that memory with her. And I thought that was really yeah. strange and interesting. That is fascinating. There is... There was one study done, and because science always makes things a lot duller, they did. They used TV <laughs> themes of soap operas that pregnant women had sat down to watch when right, they were pregnant. Yeah, makes sense. And they did find an effect on the babies. Now that's mm. not sub-based, but it does suggest that there's some kind, you know, that the, the, at some level it's getting it's getting through, yeah. and it's being picked up on. The babies are responding to it. God, so you just you could just wake up one day like as a little baby and totally be um, be tuned to the EastEnders theme music. <laughs> Does that carry on? Do you think into later life? Like, uh, I know there's there's a, a sort of um, pop psychology theory about playing classical music to kids in the womb and stuff. Do you think stuff you hear at those early stages of life? Like, do you think uh, Eamon's little daughter will love Donny Hathaway forever or be into Jungle? You know, when she's old enough to go out <laughs> raving. Does it's that carry through? It's certainly possible that they'll have, it'll have some kind of effect. And we don't... So the, the classical music thing was, you know, you know, like, why would you ever think that would work? That was kind of... A tr people believed it would make babies more intelligent. <laughs> like when my son, he was born 14 years ago, and everyone would, like, bombard you with Mozart stuff. Like, that's... <laughs> oh, yeah, because that, that, that will make him clever. Thank they you. don't know you um, very well, do they? <laughs> no, no, you know, it's perfectly lovely stuff to listen to. It's going to make nobody any cleverer, nor mm. should it. That's not the point mm. of it. It's a, but you don't... You know, you never know what your kind of... Um, what sort of interest or dis predisposition or you know just kind of you know kind of like a because we all develop some kind of aesthetic taste we don't all like the same stuff and mm. it comes from somewhere and part of it is the sort of stuff that you are exposed to when you are very young so I've, mm. can I give you one other example because this is quite crazy um there's this thing called the reminiscence bump, which when you ask anybody about their life they tend to remember most stuff from their 20s and one argument is that's when your brain is matured and that's everything, you know, you're better at forming memories. And another argument is it's awesome being in your 20s and that's when interesting <laughs> stuff happens. So there's a lot of you know, good reasons. And a friend of mine, Kath Loveday, uh, uh, she's at the University of Westminster. And in fact, she was the year behind me at Polytechnic. And she, um, she did a study of Desert Island Discs and she showed that most people select records in Desert Island Discs from their 20s. Mm -hmm. That's when you tend to get the stuff that's really kind of oh, resonating with you in this long-lasting way. But the other thing that you find, and this has never been found in any other aspect of reminisc these reminiscence bumps, is people also have reminiscence bumps for their parents' 20s. Wow. So the music oh. your parents get into that they then play to you, presumably, yeah, sort yeah, of, of this route in. So, and you even sometimes get a grandparental reminiscence bump. Of it. So it's, the music's cast in the shadow over the generations, which is amazingly powerful. That's definitely relatable for me. I mean, when I was 
um, going to school and sort of growing up and getting into music, me and all my friends were listening to the stuff that our parents were listening to. And I noticed it now, you know, we would have been listening to the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan and stuff like that. Whereas kids growing up now, uh, you know, are really into like talking heads and like more kind of late 70s, early 80s music. I thought it was just because it was cool. Yeah. (laughs) And it still is. But there's a, it's like a, moving window of what feels cool to you in terms mm. of you know and it's not not the past isn't flat the stuff that matters to your parents mm. has this kind of peaks in it i think see now my my biggest fear is that um uh, my daughter grows up and uh, she becomes like the daughter in absolutely fabulous and just hates music <laughs> does that make you ed does that make you eddie i uh, just it makes it makes me worry because i think what am i going to do with these tons of plastic that i've collected over the years that i intend to give to her <laughs> Here you go, have a lot of stuff that you don't want. I, I do worry about that, yeah. I know yeah, exactly what you mean. She gets into it now, and I, I think it's something really, um, there's something really pure, actually, about playing music to a child, because mm. they don't have the context. No. And, um, and so they just tell you brutally, honestly, yes, no, good, bad, <laughs> I don't like that. I don't care if you love the Beach Boys, Dad, it's shit. <laughs> she doesn't say that, does she? Not about the Beach Boys, she's not a monster. I was going to say, she's gone down in my estimation. She's not a big fan of techno. And she's, she, I remember once she was being very, very like obstinate and would not get into the bath. She would not leave the room to get in the bath. And I had records in my hand at the time. And I was like, go, 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 go on, go, go, go. And she was like, no, no, no. And I said, right, I'm going to put on Slayer, that'll get rid of you thinking that will get rid of her and I put on Slayer and she went absolutely crazy to it for about five minutes and I was like I have met my match <laughs> what what does your 14 year old listen to Sophie um he's oh it's very sweet he's recently discovered Eminem and he keeps going oh mum you may be a bit shocked by what you're about to hear and he's so <laughs> horrified <laughs> wait okay yeah no yeah, I do remember that Hector <laughs> It's a bit of a shame for modern kids, isn't it? Because I, I know nearly everything I listened to shocked my parents. And I, I imagine, yes. like, the next generation now, like, the, the, there's just no way out. What, what are you going to do to shock me? I've, I've seen it all. <laughs> well, I, my worry was um, that I don't know some sort of, you know, no disrespect to it, but that kind of Christian rock or something like that, that mm. would probably get me yeah. absolutely pulling my hair out. So that I'm, I'm keeping very quiet on that front. Have you tried to influence his taste at all? Well, it's not really talked about, but there is a massive unspoken war going on at home because his dad's also very into music. His dad really likes Queen. And I, 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 no disrespect to people who like Queen, I really cannot abide Queen. So, like, Tom, you know, if if he wants me to get up in the morning and make a cup of coffee, he puts on Queen because I'll just have to leave the room. Using music as a weapon. I know, right? I I think we can all, you know, assume that. that. Obviously, I'm the the hard done by person here. But it's... um, so he, he's always been very, you know, trying to get Hector into Queen. And I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to grin and bear my teeth through this, but you're going to be sorry. And he has been sorry because, um, I, I, really, and I wasn't expecting it, but Hector got completely into the Electric Light Orchestra, which I oh, liked wow. when I was, you know, in my early, very early teens. Yeah. I like, and which my father weirdly got into. It became like a weird family thing. And I think it all came from my brother. My brother like just got the whole family into the Electric Light Orchestra. And Hector now likes the Electric Light Orchestra. And that's... And he also got into, um, we, 
he and I got completely into Jesus Christ Superstar. The, oh. the early. And <laughs> what's the buzz? Tell me what's exactly, happening. Exactly. Yeah. You know I love the musicals. Loved him. There's been in a couple of really amazingly good live perform, you know, shows of it. What one going on under lockdown conditions recently, which has just been amazing. Covid yeah. safe conditions, I should say. And we dragged his dad along, and his dad was like, "Oh no, make it end," you know. But actually, he's like two minutes in, going, "This is the greatest thing that I have ever heard." But so, so it's kind of this shifting window of everybody sort of getting everybody in except I am never ever going to like Queen <laughs> well you've touched on a real favourite subject of mine I have to ask you this because before we move on to your phonographic memories because I, I, musicals are a polarising thing and mm. I'm I wouldn't say I'm snobby about music but I you know I like what I like and certain things really turn me off and um, I am completely indiscriminate when it comes to musicals I will like any old shit and my boyfriend will take me to see musicals like for my birthday or Christmas or whatever just to watch my face I have an emotional response to musicals which doesn't come with any other musical format really just complete like we went to see something for my birthday um what was it come from away which is a good musical oh, it's, I mean, it's not really good it, yeah. it's really really good and it's a very original but it's not you know it's a bit hokey in places I mean like most musicals I guess but like I was in such an emotional state by the end of it like I couldn't speak and I was weeping I could not stop weeping like I had to go and stand in a corner <laughs> until I calmed down I made eye contact with one of the performers taking a bow I think they must have thought I hated it <laughs> explain my brain to me what did I do wrong I was doing my best surely that was a key <laughs> what's going on so in my brain why, why, why is it that specific medium that, that specific delivery of music that makes I... my brain have an absolute meltdown I, analyze I, I, me please I'm, I'm i'm on a similar trajectory to you and when we went to see when we first went to see jesus christ superstar under the covid safe things and the, the cast came out socially distanced wearing face masks and then all when it music goes the duh, 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 they took off the face mask and i just started sobbing it was really moving and i think there's something about not just music but you've got that kind of theatrical total immersion mm. in a show which you get with musicals it's like it's obviously you know because theater yeah. is this Kind of magical thing and all live performance has this it's not like you wouldn't get that in a in a live music event that's a gig but you, you there's something kind of you know those people aren't they're playing that part for you tonight mm. you know there's something about that moment it it's very kind of un. It's TV I mean, plus. I, I was going to say. That's reductive. Yeah. That's reductive, Amy. Well, TV plus. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I'm it's... a very reductive person. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that. Um, yeah. With a musical, you've got a lot of visual simulation and you've got, um, a re which you'd get with t TV, I guess, but of course it's in a, in a much more 3D space. But then you've got um, the sound and the sound isn't like a normal TV show because you've got all this melody and this extra sort of layer of, of many voices all coming together. And I think if you're the type of person that can suspend your disbelief and just roll with that, then it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. But if you... If you don't suspend your disbelief, it's laughable. Yeah, yeah, because it's earnest, isn't it? We are, yeah. we are doing, we are putting the show right on right no, now. No, we are you. cats. Yeah. We are cats, and we're living in a cat world. No, <laughs> cat's a bad example. Don't, <laughs> exactly. don't bring up cats. I can't go with you there. <laughs> Starlight <laughs> yeah. Star Express is the one I really wanted to bring up. Like, no, we're trains. Don't believe in us. We're trains on roller skates. 
<laughs> oh, we, went to, we went to see the film of Cats and we, my partner went out like 10 minutes in to buy wine because he couldn't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> and That's cinema, a review. That is gave, a review. They gave him free wine in the cinema bar because oh, mate, sorry, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> After all the money they probably already lost screening that film. I went to see it and I think my expectations were so low, combined with my completely unjudgmental love of musicals, that I, well, I didn't find it that bad. I mean, it's <laughs> good. obviously, it, you know. Surely it being completely ludicrous is, is perfect for a musical. I mean, I, that's kind of... But it doesn't of, translate to the small screen. That's the thing. It is a yeah. ludicrous musical. Yeah. You know, the, sub, the, the, the core material is, is ludicrous. Yeah. There's not really a story, is there? Heroes yeah. and cats. Yeah. yeah no, it's some, some random, <laughs> random the least poems strung together with a, a, bit, a bit of yodelling. But yeah, but I'm so glad to speak to someone who also cries at musicals. <laughs> <laughs> we need to form a club. <laughs> well, tell us a, a little bit about your phonographic memories then, Sophie, because um, I'm not sure where you want to start, but you, you picked out some great tunes for us to, to discuss today. Well, I thought the one I'd start with is the Beatles song, I Should Have Known Better. Mm-hmm. And um, I, for context, when I, was, when I was a kid, I grew up in a house that didn't have any music in it that mm. wasn't live. So we didn't have a record player and we didn't have... Well, we had, there was a radio on all the time, but it was always on Radio 4. My father would not let you retune the radio for any purpose because he was so worried about not being able to tune it back, I think. Mm-hmm. And... There was music. My dad had been a singer before he decided he wasn't good enough to sort of hack it as a professional. So he'd gone into, you know, carpet selling. But his dad had been a professional singer his whole life. So there was always, you know, he was always singing, absolutely always singing. Um, But there was there wasn't sort of anything else going on. And the only stuff that we ever saw that gave us music was television. So, you know, stuff that's happening. We religiously watched Top of the Pops Mm. and... Um, we'd seen bits and pieces of Beatles music on, um, there was a cartoon version of the Beatles where they would play a song at the end and they were always really strange B-sides and things because particularly they're not going to place, um, you know, Eleanor Rigby in that kind of context, (laughs) I suspect. But, um, so we knew a bit about Beatles music, but we sort of wanted to know about the Beatles. My brother and I really wanted to like the Beatles and... They showed the Beatles movies back to back every day over one Christmas. I think it might have been 76 or 77. And we'd also just got a little tape recorder. Those, those mono small cassette recorders were new and we got one of those. So we placed it in front of the television. And whenever it looked like they were going to play a song, we would press play and record so we could record it. So we ended up with this hellish tape that my father wouldn't let us play anywhere in the house because it was all you could hear was, you know, 11-year-old stabbing at a <laughs> thing, the clunking sound. But I can remember, because I didn't know what the songs were, and I didn't even, you know, I recorded quite a lot of incidental music because I didn't realise it wasn't a song starting. But the first one is I Should Have Known Better, and it just sounded amazing. <laughs> Good. 
I can remember the first time I heard that tune as well. The harmonica was yeah. like, um, it's kind of overdriven. It's almost like too loud in the song. Yes. But it was completely spellbinding. And I just thought, wow, 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 wow. Just, I couldn't get enough myself. And mm. those films as well, um, they were pitched perfectly for kids. You know, they they yeah. were kind of, they were clever uh, but they weren't massively condescending, do you know, like a lot of a lot of children shows are. They were still being really smart ass, quippy yeah. Beatles. Do you know? What yeah, I mean? yeah. So there was a lot of cool around it as well. It was cool and it was funny and it was sort of felt weirdly. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to articulate, but it still felt like you were sort of being let in on a secret. Like mm. you know, here is this world. Now you'll know about this world. And it, I read that Craig Brown biography recently one two three four it's like a it's a fantastic biography of the Beatles and it's the first time I've read a biography of the Beatles that made it felt like you were actually feeling it unfolding yeah. like this thing getting huge and just sweeping across all possible aspects of the world's cultural landscape crushing all that comes before it it was incredible and you sort of got a glimpse of that when I that's sort of what I hear when I hear that tune is kind of like opening a door and there we go okay right now I see now I see what's going yeah. on yeah I mean given the fact it was that was being beamed into your household you know a house where there was no music on the radio or anywhere else except the TV and it was such a youth oriented thing like yeah. what did your what did the rest of your household make of it like what did your parents make what? of it my, my father, it wasn't that they, they were fine for us to find ways of listening to music. It just couldn't be on the radio. Or, or <laughs> <laughs> I like that challenge. And it turns out my mother had seen the Beatles in the cavern. She'd gone to oh, see wow. them in the cavern. Wow. And she's like, oh, I remember them. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she thought they were, she'd gone to teacher training college in Rill and her friend was mad to see them and had driven them. Or she, she'd gone because of her friend and she thought that they were very strange. Uh, and they had peculiar hair. And I, it was, I can't begin to imagine how weird it was because they were clearly already quite quite famous in the northwest of the UK by this point. You know, they'd spread as far as Rill. Um, <laughs> if you've reached Rill, yes. you've made it. <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, so there wasn't, they didn't like, and then my dad, I think we joined the, my dad got a car that had a cassette player in it. And then that was the start of music becoming, you know, the electric light orchestra were just around the corner because we started listening to music in the car mm. without retuning the radio, but on a cassette. And then my parents got into, well, there was only one Beatles, they, they bought a copy of Sgt Pepper on cassettes, mm. we played that, but it's, it's all right, it's not, you know, Hot Day's Night. Um, <laughs> and they, and that, so there was more of a, still only probably about five or six cassettes were ever purchased and listened to, but that was, that was kind of the route in for there being more music around, and probably also to stop me and my brother from playing this awful thing that we'd recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I, that really brings back memories, by the way, of... Uh... <laughs> a time before technology had really, really graced the world of tapes where I can remember like the, the earliest tapes I got my mate to record, I think it was an Eddie Grant album or something, but he had to do it on a Sunday because it was the quietest day in the house. <laughs> yes. like, and halfway through you could hear someone go, Granddad! <laughs> my, my, next, my next door neighbour, her dad would let us go and sit in his car which we were allowed to retune the radio in that car to radio one 
and we would tape with a handheld you know cassette recorder we would tape the top 40 sitting completely silently in the car. <laughs> do, do you think kind of having limited access was what made you want more and sort of go off on this path that, where music was kind of dominant in your life? I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be unfair to my parents. There was absolutely always music. It just was sung. And, okay, and so it was there, more there kind was, of like it, like thing, music you made yourselves. Exactly. So I think yeah. probably my father was the last of that kind of era when that's what music meant. It meant someone mm. is performing, and his my, mother was uh, a pianist, and his father was a singer. So it was you know that was a, that was what music you would no more. I don't know, read a play than you would listen to a record. Mm. Well, that's not the yeah. medium it should happen in. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, so that was so there was a lot of music around, and that's and instruments. Although I did find, when he died, I found out that my father could play the piano. If you told me he could fly a plane, I could not have been more shocked because <laughs> he just never went near the piano. He had a piano and he never even looked at it. And it like, well, <laughs> it's shame. You a piano and you can play a piano. Why wouldn't you? Like yeah. all the time, be playing a piano. That was very much my, and still is my view on pianos. Mm. And uh, I was amazed by that. Yeah, he was. His parents have both been musicians, and I think he couldn't play as well as his mother, who, who was a pianist, so he didn't want to do that, and he never sang as well as his father, so he didn't want to do that. <laughs> he, was, he, he liked playing games he could win, my dad, and I, 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 I may also be a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, as long, as, long as, as long as you're happy with it. Yes. Uh, th- those films, going back to those, um, I think uh, something that really pulled me in... Uh, when I first watched them, I, th- I think it was Hard Day's Night. I might be wrong on this, it might be another one. But uh, there's the scene where the, the four Beatles go into the terraced houses and yes. then the terraced houses are all joined up. Oh, and, and they've got and a they've conversation got the kit. House. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, so it's help with isn't the it? bed and the floor. Oh, yeah. man. So yes. I, I wanted that, to live I wanted there that. so bad. Yeah. Me too. I still, I know no one actually likes a conversation pit if they actually have one, but I thought it was magical. The Beatles, um, certainly when I was growing up, uh, there was just like a period where Elvis and the Beatles were played everywhere <laughs> for quite yeah. a long time. And considering they'd split up in 1970, yeah. you know, there was still like when I was eight, nine, ten, it was massive still. All the yeah. kids were still listening to the Beatles. Yes, that's true. It's absolutely true. It wasn't even when I was working in an Our Price Records in 1990, it wasn't that unusual for someone to put the Beatles on. It wasn't. Mm. And it was, they weren't being particularly hipster. It was just like, oh, yes, I would like to listen to some actual pop music now. We've kind of gone through the looking glass now where they've become... People are always saying, oh, they weren't that important, they weren't that great yes. now. But, <laughs> do you know, I think if you lived through it, then you saw the impact they had on the culture. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there really was no denying it. And those, those films especially, they brought, you know... For the kids who who had parents that wouldn't let them reach in the radio and um, uh, who didn't have lots of music lying around. My parents were similar to yours in that they would sing, but they, we didn't have a great deal of music. You know, they didn't, they didn't really collect records or stuff. But, you know, at, when the relatives came around, we'd all sing around the table. That was something we did. But the, the films... When they were shown, they, they, first of all, they were geared towards the kids, so you were allowed to watch them from an early age. And then they opened you up to all this amazing music. And they are kind of the original feature-length pop videos, aren't they? They, they? Exactly, exactly. And that kind of thrill and silliness and sort of... Um, we were watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid over the weekend, and Tom said... This is like a Beatles movie because they just keep going into these set pieces. And if you'd never known about Beatles films, it would seem 
quite strange that you would do this, <laughs> but it completely, it completely, it's, it sort of spread everywhere. Yeah. So how old were you when uh, when when they, that song came into your life? I um, I must have been about eleven. Mm. Yeah, it would be eleven. It was, and it was the start of sort of the the beginning of starting to have records that were, you know, music was physical things. Mm. Mm. We did get a record player shortly after that, I think. I was going to say, how, how did that... Obviously, there was that, and then there was ELO. H how, did, um, how did that stuff inform the rest of your taste? And, like, when you got a record player in your house, what did you decide to buy? How, how did you even... Where did you even begin to start thinking about what to decide to buy? I started getting Beatles LPs. I think that was the first stuff I can remember getting. My brother was buying Electric Light Orchestra stuff, so that was didn't need to worry about that. Um, <laughs> All set for yellow. <laughs> I think the first music I can remember, and, and I, did, I did quite a lot of catching up. I would buy records in charity shops, not they weren't charity shops, but jumble sales, mm -hmm. and you know I, I'd buy old records, the stuff I'd heard and wanted to own, and you know that that was sort of what I what I came, you know, what I was looking for. And then a couple of years after. The Beatles thing. I can remember seeing the specials on top of the pops, oh, and probably yeah. seeing the specials was the first time I thought, "Oh, whoa, <laughs> this is mine. This is no one else's. This is not the Electric Light Orchestra. This is <laughs> my music." And that probably the specials and Two Tone and Scar. That was the next thing that kind of really that and the beat and, and bad, bad Man is that whole kind of world mm. of stuff. That was the first thing I can remember really. I wanted to dress like that and I mm. wanted to know everything about them and it was it was like a it felt like a new thing starting that I was seeing from the beginning. Yeah, like a like a, a genre but a fashion and an attitude yeah. and a whole sort of capsule. Yeah. Um yeah, I get that. Our, one of our uh, previous guests Kieran J Walsh picked the specials as one of his phonographic memory tracks for for the same reason, just like the first time he heard mm. I think it was Gangsters, yeah. wasn't it? Um yeah. it yeah. just completely blew his face off. It, it blew his face off to such an extent that um he heard it uh, it was being played from a, a burger van. <laughs> And he heard the music and he wanted to know what it was so much he queued up for five minutes to ask the man in the burger van what it was. And the man in the burger van was obviously like, I don't bloody know. It's a little <laughs> I love that. It, you know, music, when it catches you, it, yeah. it can really catch you. You know, mm. like to actually do that, to, to just say, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to. I've got to find out. I've got to. I'll queue up. I'll queue up. I'll wait. <laughs> when I when I was working at Forest Records, there was I think it might have gone now because there aren't really record shops anymore. But there was a phenomenon called singing customers, which you were trained to deal with. Oh yeah. And it'd be people coming in and saying, "I'm sorry, I don't know what it's called, but it goes like this," <laughs> and we would just sing at you, and you had to sort of nod and smile, and you were not to laugh or to stop. Oh, you know, no, um, suggesting you were doing anything and trying to work out. Uh, I loved it in our price, they had a protocol yes. for it. There should be a button you're pressing, singing customer, there's a singing customer. Uh, everyone it's looks a, serious. It's a big thing, though, isn't it? Because yeah. people do, they, they come in and they're not sure what's going on and they, yeah. they, 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 they do sing at you. Now, I worked in a record shop for a long time, but I also worked in a record shop sort of, um, so I started in the, the mid 80s, and that was people coming in and singing Fleetwood Mac mm. or whatever it was. But then rave happened, and suddenly I had people coming in trying to sing techno at me. And <laughs> that, that is another level of difficulty, I'll tell you. I do. I, the summer I was working in Air Price was the summer where the um, Football World Cup was in Italy, 
and um, oh, 1990, and that the exact the worst ever <laughs> outbreak of singing customers. It was like, well, here we go, we're in for another one. But I did, it did also come back to bite me a few years later in the 1990s. I ended up in HMV. I'd heard a record, no, I'd, I'd seen something briefly on television. Um, and I didn't know anything about it. It was just men rapping. So I went to... <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> no, I believe it goes like this. This is it, boy. Lucini pouring from the sky. And the guy's going, oh, yeah, I think this is Camp Low. Like, oh, God. <laughs> make it stop. Just make her stop rapping at me. <laughs> oh, God. That's a lovely level. Yeah. The, 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 the amateur rap is one of the, mm. the great dangers of the music industry, I think. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, we talked about that um, in the context of football songs a little while back. <laughs> oh, dear. Dark times. Um, <laughs> should we move on to your next phonographic memory then? Yes, please. Mm. So the next one is also a tape cassette. Um, but this was something that I heard in 1984. Um, and the context here is I'm now 17 and fallen in love, like properly for the first time, like completely wiped off the face of the earth by <sighs> adoration for someone. And it was all kind of based around music. We were just obsessed with music. And the music, weirdly, that we were absolutely, like I hadn't really heard before, and he completely got me into was the Cocteau Twins. Mm. Um, uh. And they are sort of, it's, all, it's very hard to say, it's kind of coloured, isn't it, by your experience at the time, but I just thought I'd never heard anything like it. It's unbelievable. And I was going to London for the day. I lived in Blackburn and I had a little Walkman cassette player and he made me a cassette tape and said, listen to this. And it started with Sugar Hiccup and just sitting on the train, putting on these crappy old headphones and pressing play and then these whoosh things kicked off. listening to music when I'm on a train anyway I will choose quite carefully what I'm going to listen to but that was the first time there'd been this complete kind of perfection of a you know like excitement of a train journey the, the pleasantness of moving on a train I do like trains and they keep cropping up I keep mentioning them I like trains but having this I'm uh, not knowing what was coming and then this sort of whoosh and then we're off was just magical yeah. and the, the Cocteau twins uh, we've touched this before with uh, I guess the uh, chose Miles Chapman I think chose a track with them and the thing about them at the time was that they were just from Mars they, yes. they didn't sound like anything you know that 
they had a drum machine, but they were a guitar band. They were very angular and spiky, but they had this beautiful voice coming out. And the voice didn't make any sense. And yet, Ooh. and yet, even the covers were mad. The Vaughan Oliver designed yes. covers, yes. Envelope 23. I can remember going to the shop and, you know, purposely buying the record because of the cover was amazing. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And then getting them home and having literally no way to classify the Cocteau Twins. They just, I don't know what they were. Yeah, it, it, it was a weird time in my life and it was just this weird sort of music just seemed to appear in it and f like something strange has grown in this new space. And amazing, beautiful. I mean, it's, and I did, uh, that relationship did not last very long, but I went to see the Cocteau Twins the following year in Oxford. Now, if you look at the map of, the Great, of Great Britain, going between Blackburn and Oxford, it, the distances aren't huge, but it's not really technically possible on a train and a friend and I bought, not really planning this through, bought tickets to see the Cocteau <laughs> Twins there, travelled to Oxford and then got stuck in Oxford because we couldn't get home. But it was amazing seeing them live. And, and she, I don't know what her live performances are like now, if they ever happen, but she would tear at her clothes then and beat herself. It was really mm. quite full on. It was quite, it was magical. And, you know, the music was just incredible, but it was also had this thread of real anxiety running through the mm. middle because she did not look particularly happy on the stage that's how mm. i was interpreting it I'm, i sincerely hope i'm wrong mm. i i think um with the cocktail twins uh, they when they became like really big and mega famous towards the end with heaven or las vegas and um kiko buff and then eventually when she did stuff with massive attack towards the end they were just they were painted as beautiful fluffy lovely nicey nicey and actually when they started they were angular and mm. weird and disconcerting. Peppermint Pig, Wax and Wayne. Those tracks were weird. They yes. were strange, strange bits of music. And to do the uh, to do the um, encore, they made us sit and wait while he rewound the tapes to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> and the man the sitting, I remember the man sitting next to me starting to go, "Hang on, what are they doing?" <laughs> well. I wonder what they might be doing, given that we could hear a drum sound, but we could see no drum sound. Do you think that some of this music might not be being made by the three people on the stage? You know, um, I wonder how much, because I mean, it's a form to, to to be in love with someone at the age of seventeen. I mean, that's an incredibly formative experience, especially when you bond over something like music, and it just feels like you know, there's like this magical force that connects the two of you. I wonder how much. The feeling of, of having that, having those feelings for the person who first turned you on to that music when it first came over your headphones and you listened to mm. it for the first time. How much did your feelings about that person and your connection to them inform your reaction to first hearing them? I think it was completely part of it mm. I and mean, to the extent to which I couldn't really listen to them again for years. Mm decades you know mm -hmm. i just didn't want to have anything to do with it. I, a little bit of heaven or las vegas because it sounded different enough but i couldn't mm. go back to the early stuff at all i just absolutely couldn't and only recently have i started listening to it again and really enjoying it you know it's mm. feel you know all right then i'll let go of my anxiety of <laughs> being heartbroken at the age of 17 perhaps that's not the single most important it, thing it's that's ever time happened, sophie you know? it's time exactly. <laughs> let that one go. it's amazing how like there's definitely things that i still skip to because yeah. you know the, the music is will just will be tied forever to a certain moment in my life that's a bit cringy or a certain person or yeah. a certain thing that i'd rather forget is there a way to untangle that like what what is that and how do you kind of move past it 
I think, uh, well, well, actually, I'd say probably in my case, it's that um, he got back in touch and said, oh, you know, how are you doing? And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> are you kidding me? And actually, it's been really nice being friends now. And we can talk a lot about music and we do. And it's nice. So that's the only way you have to make amends with the person. Definitely. Otherwise, that, that track that meant so much uh, to you is like lost forever. <laughs> well, I'm sure there would be another route. But I just, I had absolute, you know, some things you just put everything in the vault. Like you seal away photographs and you never look yeah. at them. There are, there's a diary you've got and you never read it. And there's music you from that time and you don't listen to it. And the whole mm. thing just as a piece has mm. been placed somewhere else because you just don't want to think about it. Did you, and so it was nice to let that go. I was going to say, did you find that you, you, you're, you, you reinvented your taste a little bit after that relationship ended? Um, well, I think it was probably one of the things that let, it set a lot of things. I can still find myself listening to records every so often nowadays. And I think, yeah, if, if I was still with David, that would be something we would like. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I can remember, oh, when Public Enemy was first kind of smashing onto the scene I can remember thinking I bet David would like this <laughs> you know and just over the years there's you know you could do something about certain sorts of music you just think yeah that would be that would be one yeah, yeah. I, th- I was going to say the, the Cocteau Twins would be kind of a perfect um, a perfect soundtrack really to being young and in love as well because the the, the sort of lack of direct lyrics that you can understand yes kind of means that you can Put your own feelings on the music and and kind of make it what you want it to be. And I can imagine, you know, with the the headiness of being in love. In fact, I remember my friend Richard. Um, he was a very we were, we were both kind of listened to the Cocktrons quite a lot, and um, he started going out with a girl called Melanie. And the Cocktrons used to do a track called Millinery, which went <laughs> Millinery, Millinery. And he started singing yes. Melanie, Melanie, oh, for months and months and months. <laughs> um, I don't think it ended well. It's true, though. I, th- I think it's true. You, you could project really whatever you wanted onto yeah. the meaning. Yeah. And there's not Absolutely. a lot of groups that you can really do that with because once once someone's written down a specific lyric, yes. you know, uh, unless you're willfully going to ignore <laughs> or, or you or you painfully misconstrue what they're trying to say, yes. normally you, you're 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 already guided down some channels. Yes. There's been a certain directivity to this, isn't there? <laughs> Well, that is fabulous. And I, 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 I kind of, I don't know, it fills me with a wistful feeling, actually, because, um, yeah, being young and in love and, and having that kind of um, space to explore, it must have been must have been quite joyous, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, now I think, well, you know, that everyone's going to get their, their heart completely broken at some point. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, it's quite nice that it was, you know, it was a sort of, it, it was a, it was a nice time. I was happy at the time, I and mean, then the music was amazing. It was a good time. Then you had music, to throw so. it all in the vault. <laughs> exactly, and in the <laughs> vault it went. The <laughs> like Prince, you got your own little vault. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's all bad news in there. <laughs> Superb. Well, tell us now then about your your third phonographic memory, please. Well, it feels like years and years after that, but it's not that long after that. So I didn't. I I, I was. I sort of lost my way a lot at the end of my teens. I, you know, partly uh, sort of spinning out of everything going wrong, but also, you know, I, I wasn't having fun at school and I was doing very badly at school. And my parents were like, why is our daughter not behaving properly? You know, which is fair enough. You know, I've seen very few signs of this beforehand. And um, I started, a, I did badly in my A-levels. I got a place to do biology at Goldsmiths, God bless them. And then I, that didn't go so well. 
um, and I left there. Uh, I took my exams and whatnot, and uh, I, I went off. And I discovered this, but the good thing was I discovered there was a thing called psychology, and you could study that. So I started, OK, I left. I'm going to reapply for psychology. And I left, and I got a job selling kilts on the Southampton Row with some... Uh, <laughs> Amazing. That's, really, that's, that's a whole other a story. A kilt worker. I was a kilt worker, and that really, that really tunes the mind. And I can remember... Um, so I'm, in, I'm down in London. I stayed down in London after, after I left home in 1985. And my parents, everything was sort of going wrong in Lancashire. My dad got sacked. Uh, you know, he worked in the industrial side of, the, you know, worked in carpets, so he, everyone was losing their jobs. So, and my mother would never wanted to live in Lancashire at all. was like, why are we here? Everything was sort of going to pieces. So they were selling up and moving, and, and it was all just up in the air. And I went home for what I didn't realise at the time was the last time I would be going home, mm. uh, but to, to what was then, the, you know, the family house. This is, just, I can remember being again in a record shop and looking at, um, just like the, there'd be the box at the side of the counter of stuff that was being sold off for nothing, you know, like cheap singles. And there was a copy of the Godfather's single, which was, um, they did a cover version of that Rolf Harris song, Sunrise. And I, Oh, God help us all. I've been a big fan of Rolf Harris when I was a little girl, and I liked the song <laughs> Sunrise, and let's just all remember a time when that was okay, right? You could just do that, <laughs> and that was fine. We're in a safe space, don't worry. And it's I thought, fine. well, I, and I read a very good review of this saying it shouldn't be good, but it's good. So I bought it, and I took it home and listened to it, and I was like, oh, that's okay. And then I turned it over, and the other side has got this incredible track on it called I Want Everything. And... It's just amazing. It's got this fantastic, it's the opening bit, there's something weird happening with the bass, this fantastic guitar solo, and it just barrels you off into this list of things that the lead singer wants and this, you know, sort of chanted chorus. And it's one of those, like, made my hair stand on end. Mm. And I can remember thinking, it was coming, it coming to New Year, and I came back down to London with it, and I made everybody listen to it. And I was like, this year is going to be different for me. I'm going to have a different year. I'm going to go back. I'm going to study. I'm going to be, you know, this is going to, it was like, a, I'm sure it wasn't the record that made it happen, but it could not have been coming at a better time in my life to think, yes, it's going to be different. Stuff's going to turn around. I'm not going to be unhappy all the time. I'm not going to be... God, lovely though it was working in a kilt shop, but I will not be working in a kilt <laughs> shop forever. I will, I'll, you know, there's a thing I want to study. I'm going to find a way of studying it. So of course, I had no idea I'd get to do that for the rest of my life. And um, mm. touch wood so far. And, um, you know, it was, it, so it was, it was a real kind of, um, uh, I can't describe it better than just saying it, it's like it still is for me. And absolutely, it immediately improves my mood. <laughs> Something to look forward to 
was just going to say, it's it's so incredible. Me and Eamon were talking the other day about, you know, what song would you put on if you were about to go and do a boxing match? Like what, you know, the, the, kind, of, the kind of song that just instantly gets you completely pumped up. It's amazing that a song can have that much of an effect on you that it makes you completely turn a corner in mm. your thinking about your own life. Do you think you were in a place where you were kind of looking for something to do that and this yeah. filled the gap? Yeah, mm. I think it probably was a, a soundtrack for something that wouldn't have happened. You know, I was on that journey. I I decided I want this what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to stay working in the kilt shop forever. Mm. But I hadn't I think probably hadn't articulated it as much the song gave me a reason to drive everybody slightly mad with my <laughs> list of things I remember I was the only year I've ever made a whole list of New Year's resolutions and most of them inspired by the song That's amazing have you ever thought of like writing to them to tell them what an impact it had or getting well, in touch with them the, um, the, the, again these m- music casts a long shadow so um, my partner uh few years, maybe two, three years ago, decided that he wanted to do something different. And he started writing a radio comedy. He did it as a podcast. But he completely built it around the same track for this reason. So it's even called I Want Everything. And he wrote to the Godfathers and said, can I use it? I will pay you. And they were all right then. Um, but it's completely, he said, for him, it could only work. You had that music in it. There's something, you know, it's kind of just got that kind of, lift to it so I don't know if they I mean I I would definitely if I have I don't know way how I could tell them but I would definitely tell them if I could it's just fantastic yeah, yeah. I, was, I have to say I was rather delighted to see the Godfathers on your list because uh, I think I said when, when you put, sent it over I haven't thought about them in years yes. but um I can remember my friend Brian and um Jason we'd all sit around and we'd listen to music and Brian was deep into the Godfathers and um what you said about the lyrics the way um he kind of does this big litany of what I want and all this sort of stuff it's, it's very and the music itself is all very direct I can see why mm. it inspired you and why it would get you going do you know what I mean because there's a they have a lot of energy behind them and and the way the guy writes his lyrics are it, it's very matter of fact I always remember they had the album which was called Birth, school, yes. work, death. death. Yes. Best album title <laughs> ever made. Amazing. I mean, it's just yes. perfect. How, how could it get me better than that? Birth, well, absolutely. School, work, death. And they used um, to, um, I never saw them play live, but they used to come out to the Sweeney theme tune, didn't they? In the time in the 1980s <laughs> when no one really was looking for that Sweeney energy. And oh man, I loved the Sweeney. So I was very, I was very pleased that there was there's some kind of shared love for, I don't know, souped up Ford. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were a very good live act as well. I think I saw yeah, them, yeah, I wish I'd I seen them one time, and uh, they were they absolutely killed it. It was brilliant. Does do, do you have um, uh, a theory from your sort of work? Um, let me start that again because I'm not going to call it sort of work in neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say it properly. Um, do you have any theories, uh, you know, that, that come from your years of work in neuroscience about what impact, like what is a song doing inside someone's brain when it completely transforms their mood or attitude, you know, 180 degrees? Um, I, I, I don't know for sure other than music is very, very complex in the effects it has on the brain. So some of the stuff you get from music is probably that kind of really basic connection to a pleasing sound that's probably been there your whole life there is a really big effect of familiarity so if you want someone to like a tune 
make sure they've heard it many times. They may not like it immediately, but you know, the, the, it's the stuff you've heard. It's, it's called the mere familiarity effect. That's DJing. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that thing um, of when you when you would get a record and then you had to you had to play it X amount of times before you got it. Do you know yes. what I mean? I, I think nowadays, because music is so quick to pick up here, there, and everywhere, you, the, the the skipping has come in, and you can just skip. You know, I'll go to the next. I'll go to the next. I'll go to the next. Yeah. But in those days, when you had to buy the five pound lump of plastic, well, that's five quid, so you're going to listen to every track. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Every track yeah. is twenty p. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and yes, you're going to and you're going to exactly. I've bought this. I'm damn well going to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's going to earn its place. Yeah, exactly. So you've got this familiarity. You've got this kind of social connection with the sound. There's um. Obviously, the, the, there's a very strong role for music and emotions, probably exactly the same way as the voice and emotions. So you can have this kind of, you know, leaning into, complemented by lyrics, maybe, but, you know, kind of the, the positive or negative or sad or happy feel to it. And you do get, um, and this is where it starts to get a lot, a lot more personal, for certain songs, people do get the reward network in their brain activated. So this tends to be the stuff that gives you back a bit of a chill real thrill to hear it that really is the same dopamine network that people exploit in illegal ways via other routes mm -hmm. but you're, you're getting that for free with music so you've got this kind of very wide range of things from a very basic kind of connection with the people in the, the physical environment around you that you get from sound and pitch and then this stuff about familiarity and then of course oh, sorry and the other thing i should say is memories it's an incredibly strong connection to like your memories of your life. So it's one, and it's one of those things that doesn't go. So if, even if somebody is densely amnestic or they have very profound dementia, playing them old music that will come from a time when they're very, they're likely to have known it, they normally remember it and enjoy listening to it. So it's quite extraordinarily how, you know, it's one of the reasons, again, I think it matters, is it's linking into all this different stuff. Mm. I mean, that's, of course, is, is why we do this feature because. Uh, it is yeah. one of those things, you know, uh, and the funny thing about it is it doesn't even have to be a necessarily a good memory. Do you know what I mean? You, yes. Like, you can still derive a great amount of pleasure from a very painful memory when it's brought up by a song sometimes. And, and the way that it just short circuits and bypasses all of your usual safeguards to keep your your yes. emotions inside and your brain like nice and safe behind your your wall of ego or whatever a, a, a certain tune that had an effect at a certain time on you cuts through like a knife through butter it is absolutely extraordinary and as you say it, i can uh, there was years ago my father was desperately ill in hospital and i was charged he lived in france i was going back and forth to france and there was some french record they kept playing as late 90s um, which was a, a version of Ne Maquite Pas, you know, the Brel mm, song. Mm. But it was really upbeat salsa version. <laughs> <I> really, <laughs> Ne Maquite And whenever I was anywhere in France, someone would be playing it. It couldn't have been more inappropriate for my mood. It was just this <laughs> phenomenally upbeat thing. And now I really love hearing it. It took me a while to find it. I did track it down and buy it solely. So I could remember that time and have a really exactly exactly like you said. I can just go straight back to it. I want I, I want to yeah. remember that difficult time. This is the immediate way into it. Uh, music has a certain magic as well when it comes to moments like that. Sometimes you'll get, you know, a song or a type of music that comes up at these particularly serendipitous moments, and you're just like, the universe is. You're not gonna. I mean, this is completely unscientific. 
<laughs> as my go, boyfriend go with it and be brave <laughs> when I say stuff like this my boyfriend likes to say yeah a coincidence <laughs> whereas I'm like mm, the universe but you know music has that special quality which we've talked about you know on this podcast before where there seems to be some kind of serendipity with it where you'll hear something at a certain point and then you'll hear it again at a certain point and it just kind of I don't know it makes certain moments feel connected to each other absolutely and it's when I when I first moved to London, I lived in South London, I lived in New Cross, and I'd never, I'd never been South London before, I mean, no London. And walking to Goldsmiths, it was the end of the summer, it was this time of year, maybe September, but it was sunny, and much sunnier than it was in Lancashire. And people had their windows open, and you'd hear Lover's Rock coming out a lot. Mm. And that, to me, it, that absolutely, the sound of London in the sunshine is open windows and this music I'd never really heard before, certainly not being played by people from their homes, mm. just spilling out. And it just sounded like it couldn't have been better. This is the sound, the sound of London in the summer. Absolutely. That's lovely. Like your neighbours, Anne. <laughs> we don't talk about my neighbours. Yeah. I've come to appreciate it less not and less. So <laughs> that That's fair enough. I, could, I, I am moving house that. soon. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful thing, though, because you do get... Um, you know, it, it, the the power of it, um, the way it brings your brain into into line, it does mean that you 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 really you feel your back there. Do you know what I mean? It's not just mm. like you're remembering. I think sometimes when I have a conversation with someone and they say, "Oh, do you remember such and such?" and blah blah blah, I'll nod and go, "Yeah," and I can kind of see images in my mind and stuff. But as soon as there's a a soundtrack to that, yeah. It's, it's much more than just seeing things or recalling facts. It's like a feeling about it. I just would just say that I think one of the things that is really weird about that is that's completely a, a result of, of, of recorded sound. So it's possible to listen mm. to, to exactly the same thing. That is, you know, if I listen to Billie Jean now, yes. it is the same Billie Jean I'm hearing for the, on and off since 1982. And that's very odd. That's very recent, mm. actually, for that to be a possibility. The same song might be played in different situations, but not the exact same thing. So I think what, by no means only, but there's something about actually records that really is like perfectly shaped to be something that can trigger memories because you get the absolute totality of everything mm. that would have been associated with that original memory is there again. It's not a ghost of it. It's the full thing. Yeah, it's funny, actually, because... Um uh, David Bowie, since he died, they've been reissuing these uh, big box sets, uh, retrospectives of his career. And uh, my particular favourite part of the, the Bowie cycle is when he was in Berlin. So that, that mm. time when he did like Heroes, Low and Lodger. Um, and I I've, I mean, I am, and will attest, I'm a little bit obsessed by David Bowie. <laughs> but um, I've listened, say, to Lodger uh, countless literally countless times hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and it's like it's really is part of my brain and, and because again i found it when i was like nine years old or whatever it was uh, you know i can immediately one note from fantastic voyage and i'm in my sister's bedroom you know and i'm playing her records quietly to myself you know and when they re-released yeah. this uh, this latest box set tony visconti took the original master tapes of low uh, not low, sorry, Lodger, and he did a new mix. So he mixed the album again slightly differently and, mate, that just blows my brain into pieces because yeah. it's so close to what I've, what is in my DNA, but something's wrong with it. Now, some yeah. of it's interesting and I can deal with it, but some of it I actually find 
uncomfortable to listen to. It's like someone's gone yeah. into my brain and rearranged the furniture. Yeah, I, I, well, and it literally has, actually. That mm. you are expect, you're all these perceptual expectancies which are not being met. It's, I, mm. I, I, complete, I, that can, I can occasionally find that enraging. I, no, don't do that. It's <laughs> like when someone does a, does a remix or a cover version, you just think, don't mess with that song. <laughs> no. Don't cover Stevie Wonder. Don't do it. <laughs> Or if it's different, if it's different enough, then it could be okay. No, it's not an absolute rule, but there's so, yeah, it's something no. being almost there and then not quite would probably, yeah, I'd probably. Be yeah, if you myself. fully deconstruct something, then you can accept the change. But if it's yeah. very close, yes. then it's always slightly irritating. I think. Yes, I think you're right. <laughs> well, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation, and. Um, I would quite like to carry on for the next few hours. <laughs> I have a long list of questions, which you're probably so bored of being asked, which I'm going to keep to myself for the time yeah. being. No, uh, it's a pleasure. It's a delight. And any time you, when things are normal, if you ever want to come along and, um, uh, we, if you ever want to come along, and have your brain scanned, listening to anything you think might look interesting. Cause we, oh my God, perfect I, pod piece. Well, I, I did a thing. It was just a bit of stuff for a, a radio Oh, people that do radio advertising were doing a thing at Cannes, and part of that they wanted me to scan, you know, David Arnold, the composer. Mm -hmm. And and we asked, and I said, well, you know, ask him about records he really likes, like stuff that he really, you know, that, that kind of reward network stuff, you know. Yeah. So I said, and he just, you know, he just immediately started writing down this list. Yes, I know what you mean. And when we scanned him listening to music he liked and he loved, versus stuff that we were kind of just stuff he hadn't heard before, which mm. was pretty awful. Um, it was absolutely extraordinary. I've never seen anything light up the brain like that. Yeah. It was it was incredible. Like there were tiny little bits of the brain that were not dry, being driven by this. It was quite amazing. That's so there's amazing. something there's something very interesting about and we miss I think with science because we want to control everything. So we always play the same music to people. Or, you know what I mean? We never yeah, we never that, sort of say yeah. Let, well for this person what's it working for this person? And actually when you do that you see something much richer. It may not always replicate across the whole population, but there is something genuinely extraordinary about that. So do you let me know if you'd ever, when things are normal, when and if things are normal again, if you'd ever fancy Oh me. my God. I mean, I want to see what's happening to my brain when I put on the Lion King soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, what is going on in there? I need to know. <laughs> well, this, this image of you being held up above a cliff. <laughs> in your brain, that's your, your face on the little Lion King. <laughs> that sounds amazing. But yeah, I tell you what would be fun, actually, is, is like, wouldn't it be interesting to see what would happen if we played those two versions of Lodger side yeah, by side. Yeah, actually, well, I think that's what, true. Whether whether it still kicks off in the same bits or whether part the right-hand part of the brain is just going, what are you giving me, mate? This isn't right. <laughs> actually, that would be a very nice study. And you're yeah, right, well, we should do that. Let's do well, that. Well, we shall definitely do that. And thank you so much for coming and doing this today. It is not Pleasure. every day we get to drill a neuroscientist about what music does to the brain. And I think this is bang on the money what we're all about at What Goes Around. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I could, uh, you, I could bore you all day. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't think you could, Sophie. I think we'd be <laughs> laughing at you. I want it now.